Welcome to another episode of Right of Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our show is brought to you by lifestorytelling.com. And guess what? You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Lifestorytelling.com will teach you how. If you've been through hell and lived to tell about it, or your family skeletons are poking out of the closet, you'll want to check it out at lifestorytelling.com. We're doing something a bit different in this episode. Many of you have heard parts of my story as I interview people who have written through very difficult times. I've shared some bits and pieces. For this episode, I connected with America's crisis coach, Phaedra Koenig, and she interviews me about the crisis that I went through and the tools I used to escape from it. She had me on her show a while back, and I'm sharing her interview with me here today because it captures nicely why I started Right of Your Life and just how beneficial writing can be. It's a bit longer than our usual podcast, but you'll want to stay to hear the crazy stories and the outcome. Let's listen in. This is Coming Out of the Fire with Phaedra, America's Crisis Coach. Hey, hey, Bravehearts, it's Phaedra, America's Crisis Coach, and you have found Coming Out of the Fire, the podcast that features all my friends who have been through the unimaginable and fought back. So you know the drill. All you got to do is lean in, take care, take heart, and take a moment to welcome Stacy Curtis to the show. Hey, Stacy. Hey, Phaedra, how are you? I'm so great. How are you? I'm excited to be here. I'm so great to have you. So I'm just going to give the listeners a little bit of information about you, and then we are going to jump right in. Great. So Stacy Curtis wants to live in a world where everyone feels free to share their stories, and listeners gain wisdom from them. She knows that it feels much safer for someone to process words on paper than confront tough situations. Stacy interviews fascinating people on her podcast at rightofyourlife.com. That is a cool podcast name. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. I just want to say thank you for being here because without you and without your story, I would not have a show. (laughs) (laughs) So what I want from you is to share with me your bad crazy story. But what I want the listeners to know (laughs) is that it doesn't matter if your story is the same or is different than Stacy's because here's what I know. Everybody feels the same range of human emotion, and it doesn't matter what you've gone through or where you are at the moment. You will resonate with something that Stacy has to say. So, Stacy, I know you've brought an amazing story to share with the Fire Nation. So, what have you got for us today? Well, it's certainly interesting, and probably people have had some similar things. Let me start with the one moment in time where I realized it was crazy. I was paying bills one time. I was married to my second husband, was paying bills, and my daughter came and said, hey, mom, can I get on the computer? She was in like third grade, and she couldn't figure out the password. So I sat her on my lap, and I undid the password for her, and my husband's email was up right there. Mm. And the email said, hey, here's your confirmation from Craigslist. And you've had a listing on males seeking males and females together for, you know, whatever fun. So I quickly scooted my daughter off of my lap, shut the door, and I read the craziest Craigslist posting that he had put on there. He was advertising himself on Craigslist. 
and my heart just started beating. I was, I was, I quickly sent that to my sister in Texas. I managed to make that unread, put the password back on, and I acted as if nothing was wrong. I had to process that. I knew there was, it was just crazy. It was just tough. It was a very, very tough marriage. In, in fact, I found out later he was a sociopath and I went to an attorney. So yeah. I just want to stop you at this moment where you found this email and you said your heart started beating fast. And I'm sure that's yes. just one of many physiological oh. reactions yes. you had, because I would imagine your face got really hot, your stomach got queasy. And in a moment, don't you start just going do I know this person? Is my life real? Right. This domino it, effect, right? I'm like, I was just shocked. I was shocked. It, like I said, it was a very difficult marriage because he was a sociopath, but I had never thought I would see that. And I just, I just knew I'm, this is it. This is really it. I did not want my daughters. I, I was accepting things. I was like, okay, we're it's tough. I'm just going to, I'm staying for the kids. I, I've done everything I could possibly do to make this marriage work. And I realized I don't want my kids, my girls growing up, having the same type of relationship. And if I stayed, I knew they would because they were watching me accept things that I shouldn't have. And I'm, I'm like, I have to do this for my kids. I cannot accept this. So I love that that is where your mother heart went and just mm-hmm. woman to woman and woman to raising women. I have two daughters myself, knowing that, that was the enough point for you to make the change that right. sometimes we borrow our courage in different areas. And exactly. maybe you didn't have the desire to make radical change for yourself, but you could look at your children and say, okay, they're going to decide what life looks like and how women are supposed to be in relationship with men based on the primary relationship in their life, which is their mm-hmm. parents. So let me go back and ask you some foundational questions if that's okay. Sure. Sure. So, how long had you been married? About 10 years. Okay. And how? And you said you had daughters. How many? Mm-hmm. Two, two daughters. They were in, I believe, third and fourth grade at the time. Okay. And, and you fourth. said that the marriage had been funky and you used the term sociopath, which yes. I always take caution when people start to use in my mental health background and just try to right. make sure that the listeners know that there is a true definition of what that is. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Now, you didn't know that going in. You, that I wasn't didn't know part, it at the time. Right, right. That wasn't part of his dance card when you signed up. You didn't right. know. So what <laughs> Thought he was were, quirky. <laughs> yeah, quirky. Okay. So what were some of the early indicators before you even had this final moment? That oh, that's a think? great question. When we first started dating, I thought, wow, how free of conscience he was. And I thought, I I almost admired him because I had such a a conscience about truth and and doing the right thing. And and it was almost a burden to me. And he would quit jobs. I mean, he never kept a job longer than six months. He would just walk out. And at the time, I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool not to have burdens over that not to not to worry about what other people think of you and and so that was one of the first ones and the second one and this is this is for everybody he told a woeful story that got me to feel sorry for him and that is a huge indicator one of the first indicators that you, that you're involved with a sociopath 
is that they get they pull you into their story. It's poor me. I've had a poor childhood. I've had this and that. And it bonds you to them psychologically because you're the, typically they fi- they find intelligent, nurturing, uh, responsible women. Mm. And actually, strangely enough, I'm going to just go ahead and jump forward. This is a pattern. He found me at a gym and got me pregnant, married me, and then we had this horrible marriage. He got another woman pregnant, found her at the gym, got her pregnant, had a horrible marriage. Actually, he wasn't even divorced from me. He was a bigamist. Now he's in a third relationship, wow. found her at a gym, got her married, got her pregnant. And so I'm like, this is a pattern I wish I had known, but it's this whole poor me, feel sorry for me. And we just nurturers buy into it and we think we're going to help, we're going to fix and, and it just, it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, to give you some grace, how were you to know that this was a pattern if you hadn't been on the other side of it, which you are now? Right. So right. Exactly. there's no fault or if there's only observation, right? Well, and- it's learning. It's learning. I understand now what what happens. And now I can judge for myself what a good relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, I uh, take some responsibility because, and this is what I found out later, I never raised my hand from childhood. And that was one of my life themes that I've discovered is I don't raise my hand or hadn't to this date or to that date. I hadn't said, oh, you know, that's not right. Or I was afraid of rocking the boat. And that would have been a bad thing, right? No, it's not a bad thing. So now I raise my hand and say, okay, that's not right. Or I want to do this or I don't want to do that. And that's part of codependency. And you have to own up to your own codependency so you can get out of it. Yes. And it's such a fine line because being a caring, nurturing woman, male, whatever, because all, Mm. you know, all walks of life can be in that role. True. It's difficult to take in information through relationship where people are acting in certain ways and either label that as sociopathic or label that as what the ebb and the flow of relationship is because some people do have radically difficult childhoods and not everybody becomes sociopathic from it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you recognize that being a sociopath is something that is bred in you. It's a, it's a nature. You aren't born in your DNA to have these issues. So, for example, with his children, it, there isn't some hereditary thing that is, is being handed down. It was really right. about environment. So, right. do you know more about his childhood? Did you ever have a relationship with his family? No, no. I mean, I know about his childhood because he told me all about it. Although sometimes, sometimes I wonder, was it all true? Mm-hmm. I did meet his mother a couple of times, but he has a, as a sociopath, if someone crosses his path, he cuts them off for life. I mean, mm-hmm. never to go back. And he only, we only visited his mother twice, never went in her house. She was a hoarder. And I mean, just opening the door, the stench, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my kids in there anyway. But so it, it, he's very judgmental. So if, what, in fact, his half sister actually got out of the house and, and lives a great life, her and I speak, and she said something that turned him off and he's never spoken to her again. And so, yeah, it's he had a crazy life, but part of it is his 
I'm cutting everybody off if you don't agree with me. Right. And that's that's why he can't keep a job either. Oh, if, sure. If his boss disagrees with him, boom, he's gone. Right. And we find that a lot of times in the term borderline personality disorder. That's how I discovered at first I was looking, doing research early on in the marriage. I'm like, there's this is not right. Something's not quite right. I thought it was borderline personality mm-hmm. at first. And so I did a lot of research on that. And I was thinking that's what it was. But once I was, once we started the divorce and I realized this was Wow, this is more than I signed on for. It was probably the longest and worst divorce story of anybody that I know. And I had a counselor and we all actually had to get psychological evaluations for the court and and, and that's and he is. He's a sociopath. And that that gave me a label mm-hmm. that I can say, okay, here's what it is. I could pack it away rather than let it sit out there harming me further you know was it anything I did was it could I have done something to help him through that no there is absolutely nothing I could have done Mm -hmm. absolutely and getting the label it helps to humanize the situation it Mm -hmm. helps give yourself grace as I said you know you look at the situation and you acted as if things were above board and you were dealing with a mentally healthy person and so you're giving and sticking with the situation until for you, there was a line in the sand with the email. That makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, and, and right. I want to just commend you for that. And I believe it was the right thing to do. And I also believe that once you have this label, I, I that's the best term for it, I think mm-hmm. it at least gives you the ability to say this is something that is out of his control. It doesn't abdicate him from whatever responsibility lies within it, but at right. least you can look at it and say he has a certifiable mental illness right. and a, a, a personality disorder is really difficult to bear because it's socially inappropriate and makes you ineffective as a community member. And it's very hard for people to have ap- sympathy for that. It's more apathy. So, Well, and it's, it's, this one's particularly interesting because they can mimic real emotions People who are sociopaths, they can mimic, they will woo you, they will be the the best boyfriend in the entire world, they'll think about you, they will do all kinds of things, then you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm in this relationship, this is fabulous, and and they tell you things that you want to hear, and yet, once it's, once you're sucked into their world, then it all changes and it's it's really weird because they can operate for the most part in society under the radar Mm -hmm. in fact that's one of the things you know i i typically tell people is call call people call other people out because about four percent of the population are sociopaths according to some studies but you know, if you see somebody or you hear somebody, a coworker or a friend or whatever, it says, hey, I've, I went to Harvard and yeah, I just didn't want to go anymore. And I, you know, stopped. Say, really? You went to Harvard? What year? Who was your teacher? And, and call people out because these folks tell unbelievable stories. And the reason they get by is because people accept it. They're like, oh, I must have misheard that. Or, or mm, that's interesting. I never realized that. But they don't call them out. And when you call them out, they can't back it up. Right. Because they they're tend making- to run. That's what you're explaining, how he right. just cuts ties and moves on because right. that's the best way for them. Exactly. To perpetuate their reality. I have, a, I have another really crazy story I'll share with you. Yes. When I realized, so we were, were going to get divorced. I understood that. Um, the next day I went to 
an attorney. I found an attorney. I said, this is going to be it. I didn't even tell my family yet. I didn't tell anybody. And the attorney said, go home, get the computer. It was a desktop. So get the computer and take it to a forensic computer person to verify that Craigslist came from that computer, et cetera. And that way that will help in court. And so on the way home, I called my mom and I told her. The next morning, I come downstairs and I was going to get that computer and the entire computer room was empty. The computer was not there and he came in spitting mad. Mm -hmm. In fact, he spittle, I was like, my arms were crossed over my chest and Mm -hmm. he came in and he said, I know what you're doing. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to ruin your reputation. I'm going to take the kids. I'm going to take the house. I am going to take you down. Mm. And that moment I knew, I mean, this was going to be the hardest thing in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I want to get really detailed about that because this show is different than a lot of other shows and that we talk about those down and dirty details. That's Mm -hmm. why I went back to that place when you opened that email and We talk about it in hindsight once we've healed and you've moved through the healing process so you can tell the story almost as if it happened to someone else. Right. But I know for me in my specific situation, when everything was going wrong, I didn't feel like anybody truly understood and I didn't have anyone to talk to because I didn't know anybody who had ever gone through anything like I had. And Mm -hmm. I recognize now that Someone doesn't need to have gone through exactly what I did for me to get wisdom from them. I just needed to know that they understood me. And the way we know is through story and through detail. So when he was literally spitting, (laughs) angry, and like you said, (laughs) getting some of that on you, and you knew that he meant what he was saying, that he was going to destroy you, what, what did you do? What was your next step? Well, I I had, like you said, I've never experienced that before. I, I, I was in over my head. I was scared to death. And the, the really scary part, I mean, this is the Lifetime movie part was, how did he know? How did he know I went to an attorney? How did he know what I, that I was going to get the computer? And I, it was the day before. I had not told anybody except for my mom in the car. And my mom and I are like very, very, very close. And I had no idea. He also knew about some conversations that I had with coworkers and he would tease me in the next, in the following weeks with it. Like, hey, I I know that you talked about so-and-so with your coworker in the car or whatever. And I'm thinking, what in the world? So I took my car to this place called the Buy store. That's what it was called. Yeah, I've heard of it. I, and when you were describing, I'm like, she's gotten bugged. Yeah. Yeah. And and I asked him. I said, well, you know, is there a way to tell if you have a bug in your car? And he said he was really nonchalant about it. He said, no, but when I sell those things, I t- I tell him to put them up underneath the dash and things like that. So I went out. I drove to a police barracks, and I said, I suspect, and this is just. Awkward. Talk about awkward conversations. Yeah, no doubt, right. And it sounds so out of the box. Weird. Yeah. It's like nobody. So I, I said, I think my husband has booked my car. Is that illegal? And yada, yada, yada. So I waited. I told the, you know, the person they had a police woman come out 
And she also suspected there was a bug once I told her what had happened. And so she started saying, oh, yeah, the people who do this, they're, they've got small they are, you know, crazy and they're trying to make up for a comp. You know, they, yeah. she was ta- saying yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. Just, I'm like, don't piss him off. I yeah, know no he's, doubt. Listening. he's listening, dude. <laughs> so I felt underneath the dash and a little wire fell down on, on the passenger side. And I knew it wasn't part of the car because it said Radio Shack. <laughs> and so she got under there, pulled the wire, traced it to a little microphone inside the casing of my steering wheel. And so he had been, and I'm like, I'm still in so deep. And of course, there's no fingerprints on it. It's so small. And so everything I tried to do from there on out was very tough to prove that he was crazy. Now, what state were you in? Because divorce differs depending Mm -hmm. on where you live. It was New York. Okay, so yeah, I, was in New York I know in California time. and a number of other states, there's no fault divorce where none of that really matters. It will matter when it comes to custody. Mm-hmm. It will matter in mediation. I know in California, we use mediation to determine right. custody and visitation. What was that process like for you? Did you get to present these facts as they started to develop and you moved toward in your divorce? No, my attorney said, basically, it's there's there's nothing to that. You can't prove that he did it. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't use it. And he also kept going back and forth. He, um, he said, well, let's just work this out. We'll, we'll do joint custody. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yes, I can do it. Let's do that. And then we'd write something up. And, and part of it too, is in New York, the, whoever leaves the house first, like, you know, um, is it considering abandoning the home? And I'm like, I didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that. Right. (laughs) And so we were living there together with this in between us. He would keep me up at all hours of the night. Let's work this out. Let's work it out. And then we would go to court. No, I don't want to do that. And so I wasted tons of money on court fees and attorney fees. And so part of the other thing too is he tells such a woeful tale. He got somebody who was a customer of his to pay for his attorney fees. Oh my goodness. And so it, it was just very, very crazy. Just just a very crazy time. It was bad crazy. When we went to actually go sell the house, oddly enough, these courts are, you never know what they're going to do, but they said, okay, you guys, because he stole everything. He stole all of my kids, without me knowing, I would turn around, I'm like, the vacuum's gone. Where's the vacuum? Or mm-hmm. I went to go get the kids' uh, savings account, and I needed their birth certificates and stuff. Those were all gone. Then I realized all their pictures are gone. He had slowly, over the, you know, whatever weeks, mm-hmm. taken every single thing that meant something to me. My kids' pictures, all the documents, everything. He, he took it all. Mm-hmm. You're bringing up such an important point for listeners. I wrote a book called Divorce, No-Nonsense Practical Advice for Men. You flip the book over and it's Divorce, No-Nonsense Practical Advice for Women. And I tell people, read both sides of the book because you want to know what I'm telling men and women. And one of the very first things I say to people is all those important documents you need to secure, whether they go to your attorney's office and they are held in you know a neutral environment until the end. It's so important to get copies either certified or like I said, put them in a neutral environment because that is one of the tactics that 
unscrupulous people going through a divorce will do. They will take baby photos. They will take passports. True. They will take birth certificates, marriage or death certificates. And for some people in some states, it's very difficult to get documents to reproduce Mm -hmm. them so if you're listening and this all is resonating with you and you're hearing some familiarity and in your stomach there's some knowing that's rising from listening to the story i just want to encourage you number one get my book on phaedra on amazon.com and number two get all that documentation all those precious singular items and get them to a neutral environment Absolutely. One of the really another crazy story was when we were both living in the house and ultimately the judge said, okay, we're going to, you know, this is getting so crazy that you are going to alternate being in the house. So I had to go live with someone else for a couple of days a week. And then he had to go live with someone else a couple of days a week while I was in the house. I'm like, that's just opportunity for him to steal more. But yeah. they, they didn't realize that. Uh, we had we were on a well. We had a water well. And he would, he, there. I don't know, it was a complicated thing. So he would turn off the water. Mm. And so we couldn't have any water at all so then when the kids would go to him and say I, I need to take a bath he would go turn on the water let them run their bath and turn it back off again so i could never take so i ended up you know saying okay now like go go take a bath and then i would have to go use that water mm-hmm. and many times i would before work i would go to the local grocery store go in their bathroom brush my teeth, wash my face, sometimes wash my hair in order to even live. And I had a professional job. I'm a professional woman. You would never guess this is going on at home. It, it was just crazy. And then when both of us were out of the house, the house was going to sell. We actually had a contract and he went in there and cut all the wall sconces off and filled all the toilets with feces. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, one more, one more crazy story, then we can move on. Okay. So one of the times, or actually, ultimately, the, the judge was starting to see some of these things and we were, get, I was getting some proof and he went in and cut the wires of the heating system, cut them all. And, you know, I took pictures and the police came and it was sabotage. Of course, it couldn't prove it was him, but obviously it was. And the next day, I was able to get somebody out to fix it, luckily. It was in the middle of winter in New York. And I was able to get somebody out. They fixed it. But the next day, who comes knocking on my door? Child Protective Services. Oh. I understand you have kids here without heat. Mm. <laughs> like, nope. We're, we were just sitting there in the nice warm house and playing a game on the floor. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But you were able to say, but I can guarantee I know how... The series exactly. of led up to you coming to my front door. Yes, the very next day, oddly enough. And oh my gosh. Well, yeah. there's a couple of things that really jumped out at me when you were talking. And one is that this is a phrase that I hear all the time, which is nobody would believe that this was going on. Mm-hmm. I was showing up in the world and yet this was going on behind the scenes. And I just want to point out to the listeners that for Phaedra, America's Crisis Coach, I get told that all the time. When clients are working with me, their biggest fear is being found out. Their biggest fear is that someone's going to find out that how they're showing up in the world isn't really congruent with how they're living. Mm -hmm. And this fear of being found out is keeping them from living the life that they truly want to live. And carrying that burden around is 
how they struggle every single day in life. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I know that it ended up not being that way for you, Stacey. And I want to switch gears and talk about what that looked like, because that's not your life now. That's right. not the experiences that you're having. And the reason that you can tell these stories that had to have been horrific. I mean, being mm-hmm. cut off from water, having him sabotage the house. And to be honest with you, that sociopathic behavior, that could have escalated easily to physical harm. Right. And right. I'm imagining it didn't. And I'm so grateful, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from how difficult it was to live in that moment. And I just right. want to say, I'm so sorry that that is happening. And yet I want to point out, most people would think that a story like yours, a crazy story is really happening in lower socioeconomic dysfunctional families with this habitual thread, you know, of just not knowing better. And yet you're, you know, a middle-class woman Mm -hmm. who is bright, has a high IQ. I was making six figures. Okay. So you are not middle-class, you are upper. Okay. So, and yet it's happening to you. And I am telling you it's happening all over the place. One of the most memorable cases that I had of my own clientele was a woman who lived in one of the most expensive counties in the nation. And she called and I swear to you her story could have been your story Mm. and she was petrified Mm -hmm. she had been put in situations where she wasn't (laughs) earning her own income she had been degraded her children were sons so the there was this alignment with the husband and the boys and there was this alienation of affection going on and she called me just scared to death and really believed that this person was going to ruin her and Mm -hmm. force her to give up being a mother and to give up any rights she had to this, you know, beautiful life that they had because they had beautiful things and, and that sort of thing. And, and through the course of working with her, it was a six month commitment. She came out the other side winning everything she deserved. But more importantly, she knew her worth. She had put him in his place. He knew right. 100% that she did. She she knew him. That <clears throat> his days were over for manipulating. She had reestablished a relationship with her sons. And oh, I'll tell God. you, there were days where she called me just hysterically crying. And there are days that were triumphant and there were everything in between. Yeah. And it took that full six months. But boy, you know, she is independent, back in the workforce, has this crazy story that she has <laughs> similar to yours, right? Mm-hmm. And she's healed. So let's talk about the healing. Now, one thing that keeps going through my mind with you <laughs> is your children. How were they bouncing around all this time, witnessing what was happening? How did you keep a sense of normalcy? And, you know, we also have to give our children enough reality that maybe, you know, our parent, their father was not mentally stable to what capacity they could understand it as a third and fourth grader. Right. Versus keeping the respect. So tell me about that. Yeah, that that was the scariest part because he had, and these sociopaths have a capacity for like I said, wooing people and and telling tales. So he started going to church, which was crazy, but it was only for show. And I talked to my daughters about that and they said, oh yeah, dad's always gone to church. I'm like, uh, no, he just started last month because it would look good in court. And and so I... I was extremely careful because I did not want to be the one that's, that got 
caught bad mouthing him. But someone told me, you can call out the lies and you can say, okay, that's not true. So I would often, not every day, but if they would say something like that, I would say, no, your dad has just started going to church or no, you know, that's not correct. The other really odd thing was this, and it's scary because there, he was trying to woo the, the girls. Um, my oldest daughter, he thought, which wasn't true. He thought when she reached 10 years old that she could choose who to live with. And so he would take her on trips to the go-karts. He would take her to, to, the bookstore to buy several books. He would all the time, he would pick her up from school early, take her out to lunch, all this all of a sudden, because he wasn't that great of a dad before Mm -hmm. and wooing her. And he would. So for instance, on a Saturday, he would say, okay, let's go and we'll take your friends. And my younger daughter who couldn't make that decision, uh, he said, oh no, we're just going to go to the grocery store, which she didn't want to do. And she said, okay. And he would take my older daughter and go pick up her friends and go take them to the amusement park. Wow. And and so she was living the great life. Hey, dad's doing this for me and I'm doing this for, you know, and the kids are, you know, she didn't think about, hey, her younger sister's being left behind. Right. Um, but he was wooing her and took her for horseback riding lessons, all kinds of stuff. So how did you combat that? I mean, at some point that all got called out or it started to change. How did you practically, what what did you literally do to shift that? Well, I I, I didn't do anything about that. There was nothing I could do. I would I would mention hey maybe next time why don't you help take your sister or or something like that or or call out the lies but there was nothing I could do I didn't think at the time now what ultimately happened was he caused me to lose my job and I had a job waiting for me and I was the the primary caregiver uh, primary you know breadwinner of the family and because of that I actually got to move and the judge was seeing some of these crazy things coming up. The judge allowed me to take the girls out of state and move to Texas. Well, that which is, is extremely not, rare. Yeah. As I say, that is very unusual. Very rare. So he saw some of that. And so then they were away and, and that didn't happen anymore. Although he kept trying, you know, he would call, I miss you. Your dogs miss you. Your teachers miss you. Your friends miss, and making them feel guilty from long distance. Uh, that's over the years. It's been, gosh, it's been fun. Six years now. Wow. Five or six years. Over the years, they started to see now they're older and they're seeing through his lies and through some of those things on their own. But I I didn't tell them at the time. I'm so glad to hear that. And that's just a little spot I want to rest for a second. When I work with families who are going through divorce, a lot of them are very emotionally attached to the fact that they have children. And so they've stayed in situations longer than they would have, or they justify Mm -hmm. behaviors in themselves and in their ex because of the quote sake of the children. And I always explain to them, and I've been divorced and had a very difficult divorce that with children now who are completely grown, I've run this gamut. And I recognize that our children go through their own developmental stages 
And they go back and they reflect on their parents' divorce. And they do it with their newfound maturity, their newfound personal experiences. And they go through their own healing over time. And they come to you and they discuss the situation surrounding the divorce when they're ready. And you're able to explain it to them at higher levels. And you can't recognize that when your children are small. You think that they're being right. imprinted. And, right. and to some extent that they are. But if you are healthy, and if you have a healthy form of communication, this is an ongoing process. And my divorce ended in infidelity. And I didn't spend a lot of time, obviously, talking about that with my children when they were young girls. But boy, when they got to be teenagers and even young women and they started having friends with you know boyfriends who cheated all of a sudden they had this reference and they put two and two together and they're like ah. how did you not kill her like, <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like mom you were a bad like how did you not do anything right. and it's like well you just can't and you can explain it to them more woman to woman where mm-hmm. in the moment you know I, I remember driving my car and my ex and his his, they've been married now for 13 years, so more power to them. But at the time, she was my friend who had become my mm. husband's girlfriend. And I used to use Lama's breathing. And I've got my two girls in the back, and we lived a really small town, and we crossed paths, and I just have to like... <gasps> You know, <laughs> like I want to do something and I can't. I couldn't <clears throat> scream. I couldn't cry because I had these two little girls in the back that would have been like, what's going on? Well, so. that's the, you know, the other thing too is people told me at the time because I had my mom and my sisters and I wouldn't even tell them the whole story. I would, I would talk to my mom one day, my older sister the other day, the next, my younger sister the next day because nobody, nobody could take that whole crazy stuff that was my life. But, other people who had gotten divorced and things like that. And they said, your kids will come through. They will find the truth. You don't have to tell them all of that right now, but they ultimately will. And I want to give people hope. I, I doubted that at the time. It was, he was, he had such a campaign against me to them and he would, he would talk bad about me to them. And I, I kept it on the up and up. It was so hard, but they have come around. They, they realize I have not told, they don't know the whole story even now, but they're just teenagers, but your, your kids will come around. They will see, and you just stay on the up and up. Thank you. I appreciate you giving that out there to the listeners. So one of the things that sounded like it was a benefit for you was literally moving and getting mm-hmm. distance between you. And it, you said it's been about six to seven years since you've been right. apart. So right. once you finally made that move and you had the ability to reestablish yourself, you still had some lingering, I'm sure. Do I even understand human nature? Can I even consider dating and, and reinvention? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was, to be honest with you, I'm like, I, because this was my second husband. My first one cheated on me and he wasn't, he had OCD and he cheated on me. And, and so like, you know, th- are there any sane men in the right. world? And I, I did not want a man at all. I didn't, I was perfectly content with myself. I rebuilt my life. I do not, did not need a man. I, and I still don't actually absolutely need a man, but I was content to live the rest of my life out with with no, nobody and have a great life. I mean, I had a career. I started some other side businesses and I had fun and my kids would grow up and uh, I had friends and we did went to the movies and things like that. 
I, I actually did end up in a relationship and, and it's the most fabulous relationship. Got to tell you, there are fabulous great men out there who are wonderful. I'm so glad. Uh, and I know it's because you spent that time alone. Yes. And you weren't looking for somebody to complete you, which is one of my pet no, peeves. Yeah. Yeah. I finding someone to come alongside you at some point. Well, there's some, there's some people that say, oh, I really, I need a man or I need somebody I'm like, no, you don't, you don't. And the, the moment you realize you don't, you are a whole person all by yourself. That's the moment then you can actually start looking and I never, I didn't actually look too much, but uh, you know, that's a whole nother, another situation. It was just by chance that, that I came into this relationship and it's, it's, we've been dating for three and a half years now and it's just wonderful. I can hear the smile in your voice. <laughs> I am. I'm smiling. He's, he's and fabulous. I'm glad. And I, and I really want the listener to see that this is a full circle, you know, mm-hmm. that the time when everything was going on with your husband, that was really traumatic. And I'm sure that there were times when you really needed to do something just for self-care. So just as we transition, I just want to know if you can give us a tough, couple of tips. So when things were bad, right? When when you turn around and, you know, the toilets are full of <laughs> and when you're not able to take a shower and you're brushing your teeth at the grocery store. Right. When you are get, you know, getting your <laughs> car debugged, when you are calling a repairman to fix the wire heaters, what were you doing to keep your sanity? Was it Starbucks? Was it running? There had to have been something that helped you stay grounded. Yes, two things. Uh, the first one is pray and memorize scriptures. My, that's what my mom kept saying. That was her mantra. Every time I talked to her, God is in control. God is in control. And, you know, I, I knew that all my whole life, but that's this is really where the rubber met the road. And at some point, the, the court was, you know, not seeing yet what he was. And, you know, they could have awarded him the kids. And he was trying to say, what a bad mother I am. And I was scared to death that I would actually lose my kids. I mean, it actually I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. But I would pray and memorize these different scriptures and it gave me a huge peace. So I would recommend that to anybody. And then the second thing is writing. I got some money for my birthday and I, there was a, a writers and books organization that taught writing classes. And one of those classes was a memoir class. And everybody had been saying, hey, these the stories you tell are so crazy. You've got to write them down. So I thought, well, maybe, you know. And so I went to this class and every Friday we would bring our stories that we had written and we would craft them. They're about your life, but you can write about your life in a way that's fascinating, like a novel. And we would craft our stories and they loved my stories so much because some of those things you just have to laugh. They're so crazy. Mm-hmm. And and they, they loved them so much. I got a scholarship to come back the second semester and writing about what was happening in my life at that point in time. This was before I moved was incredibly freeing. For instance, I realized my part in accepting some of these things and I and I didn't stop him from doing early on what he was doing that was wrong or I didn't say, you know, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. And I never that's where I found my theme was not raising my hand. And when I discovered that we have a huge capacity as human beings to pull the wool over our own eyes, even though you've lived your life, 
you have not learned the wisdom of living through your life until you write it out. And then you're seeing that in black and white. And you learn so much, you can change yourself. I changed my life theme. You also see clearly about where you want to go. And that the beauty of, and that's why I teach people right now, the beauty of writing things about your life is that you also process that and it loses its scary power. Because when you're thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going through a divorce. What if the court said, believes him? What if he, you know, we're never going to sell the house if he keeps damaging it? What All of those things are pinging you all throughout the day and it's stressful and your cortisol levels going up and your gain weight and <laughs> all those things. And, and it's just horrible. But when you write it out, it helps you become much clearer about what your next steps will be, what that was. And it just puts it in the right place. Physiologically, trauma circumstances like this, traumatic circumstances are stored in a different part of your brain. And what writing does is it puts them in the part of your brain that's with your regular memories so it can't keep hurting you over and over and over again. I love that. I love that. And so that really dovetails into what you do and how you help other people and your amazing ability to help people tell their stories. So can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do and how they do it so they can find out how to connect with you? Yes. It was so incredibly amazing writing about my life. I I never intend to publish it. Maybe I will one day, but it was so helpful for me that I started doing some research into the art and the psychology of writing uh, about traumatic events and writing about your life. And I started teaching that at the local community college and Now I have a course online, it's at lifestorytelling.com, where people can learn the same thing. And my podcast is at rightofyourlife.com. And what I do on my podcast is I interview people who have written about their lives in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be through trauma. It can be like I'm getting ready to start a songwriter series. People write lyrics about their lives and then put them in song poems and essays and whether they're published or not, it's very beneficial to trace your trouble and then transcribe your tale and transform your life. And you'd be amazed at how well that works. Yeah, you can connect with me on rightofyourlife.com and listen to some of those. I've had some guests on that talk more about the psychological benefits of writing about your life and writing through trauma. So you can listen to some of those as well. That is amazing and super cool. I'm going to be heading over there after this interview to check it all out. I just want to say thank you so much for coming and sharing your crazy story because (laughs) this is definitely going to help people. I know that these higher levels of what my friends have experienced really are going to be a benefit to listeners. And if you are in a similar situation to Stacy and you want to reach out with her, we'll make that possible through our show notes. And if you need some help navigating your own divorce and you need someone to talk to, you can certainly reach out to me and I will be glad to 
get you on the right track. But it has been my pleasure to share Stacy with you today. But one last thing before I go, I have something for you at crisiscrusher.com. You can get a free series of videos and some worksheets. It's going to help you to manage your crisis or possibly a crisis if you're in the future, because it's just a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. I know that for sure. And it's just my way of saying thank you for listening to the show, because I just really appreciate you for spending your time choosing this podcast amongst all the others that are out there. So I just want to say thanks. And remember, with me around, you are never, ever going to be alone. Bye, guys. That's all for this episode of Coming Out of the Fire. But be sure to head to americascrisiscoach.com for more information, blog posts, and an open invitation to share your story with Phaedra herself. That's all we have for today. I appreciate Phaedra for interviewing me for her show. You can go check it out at doinglifewithphaedra.com. I hope this has given you insight into why we do what we do here at Right of Your Life. In our last episode, Kim Saeed discussed the importance of no contact in getting out of a bad relationship and provided some valuable resources. So if you've been involved with an abusive person or you're going through that right now, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next week, we'll interview a first, a knight in shining armor. Be sure to check out the show notes on every single episode. We have free resource downloads not typically mentioned in the show at rightofyourlife.com. We love interacting with our listeners on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. Our handle is Right of Your Life. Some of our listeners like supporting the arts. If you do too and want to support this podcast, you can do so by sharing each episode on your social networks. And you can head over to our special page at patreon.com slash rightofyourlife and become a patron. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash rightofyourlife. Both of these help us reach many more people who could benefit from writing about their lives. We hope that today you have the right of your life. <laughs>